John chapter 16, if you have a Bible. I think all of us have had travel nightmares, flights from hell, canceled flights, delays, lost luggage, torn, ripped luggage, bad. I think the worst one I ever had, and I've, with 10 million miles, I, I'm entitled to an opinion. I flew from New York to Bangkok, Thailand, but at least that was the way I booked it. That was the plan. But somewhere over India, New Delhi, we lost an engine. So we landed in Karachi, Pakistan, right in the middle of the night, like, like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. We were herded into an airport lounge, which had no air conditioning, straw roof, and 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We were given no update, but the bar was open and free. So a whole lot of passengers on that 747 got drunk. <clears throat> we were told we would have to wait for an engine to be flown from Beirut, Lebanon, and that would be another eight hours. People were drunk. People were cursing and screaming. I, I, was, I was livid. I told one loud mouth, I said, if you don't shut up, I'll punch your face out in Jesus' name. And I'm telling you, I would have. He did. Now, finally, the engine came, and they flew us back to Beirut, Lebanon, the opposite way, another eight-hour delay, and I finally arrived in Bangkok, Thailand two days late, and God knows where my luggage went. I call it the sinfulness of depravity of commercial air travel. If only we could find a way to avoid pain, avoid problems, avoid trouble, wouldn't that be nice if we could just wish our way out of tough times? You know, it would be great if there were no such thing as trouble. I think that's a fairly prevalent sentiment in our culture today, trying to avoid trouble. But the problem is that while God's plan for earth is that we live in His peace, His justice, His grace, He has never promised us that our lives would always turn out exactly like we planned. In fact, when God came into the world in the incarnated person of Jesus, He said something very difficult about what we would face in life and what He has done and will continue to do about it. So we're looking at a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of John. Many of you know the story of Jesus' Last Supper with His disciples and how they shared a final meal and a conversation that night. And Jesus makes a profound statement about what life would be like for those who follow Him. Verse 32 and 33, John 16, He said, The time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone. My Father's with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. One of my favorite moments in any good movie is the climactic line by the starring actor. I'm thinking of Mel Gibson in Braveheart screaming, freedom! Or I'm thinking of Harrison Ford in Air Force One shouting to a terrorist, get off my plane. Or I'm thinking of Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry telling a killer, go ahead, punk, make my day. I, I just love those lines. They live forever. Well, here is Jesus with His best friends, His most loyal followers, and only hours left before His crucifixion. So what's He going to say to inspire them? What will be His climactic last words? Well, here they go. In this world, you will have trouble. And I'm thinking, 
Lord Jesus, you need a new speechwriter. That's just not cool. Somebody should have told him to say, hey, nothing's going to stop you now. You're going to make it. But he doesn't say that. He says, in this world, you'll have trouble. Now, stay with me on two points tonight. I mean, this evening. I don't know what it is. Sometime it is. (laughs) I'm still lost in Beirut, Lebanon. I do not know. But what does Jesus mean by trouble? Because I'll bet you it's not what you think. You know, I often associate trouble with being in trouble. Ah, it's not the same. Because being in trouble has to do with the consequences of a bad decision. You know, if I bring drugs over the border and get caught by the guards and I go to jail, I'm in trouble. But that's not the trouble Jesus is talking about. Uh, I remember, was it, I don't know, maybe six months ago, uh, I was watching one of our news channels about a nine-year-old boy from Texas who moved with his family to Tacoma, Washington. And the boy was so homesick to get back to Texas, he stole the neighbor's car that had been left running in the driveway. He was chased by police at speeds of up to 90 miles an hour. He wrecked the car, but he escaped police custody. He somehow made it to the airport, sneaked through security with a discarded Southwest Airlines boarding pass. He boarded a flight to Texas, made a connection all the way to San Antonio, where he was finally caught trying to make a connection to Dallas. That's my problem. You always get delayed trying to fly to Dallas. And that's where they caught this kid. This fourth grader was placed in juvenile custody in San Antonio, Texas. You know, and I was thinking, to a diehard Texan, that's better than Tacoma any day. Now, I'm not the kid's father, but I'll bet this boy is in trouble. He's facing the difficult consequences of his choice. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of trouble. The word John uses in the Greek is the word flipsis, F-L-I-P-S-I-S, flipsis. And flipsis is the kind of trouble that comes from difficulties that are around all of us in the world today. A good, world, a good way to picture this is through the idea of undue weight or pressure. To have flipses is to feel the pressure and pain of the world pressing in on you like extra gravity or like swimming against a stream. Ever experience life like, man, I feel like I'm swimming upstream. It is so hard. And the result is something like a spiritual gravity or a current that will, like a riptide that keeps taking you away from God and from His character. And when you go to work, there's a gravity that pulls you towards greed or ambition or deception, or there's a gravity that pulls you towards selfishness or indulgence. Or when you're walking by Baskin Robbins, there's a gravity that pulls you towards mint chocolate chip ice cream. And to resist that current or that pressure, you get flipsis, trouble, that kind of trouble. Let me give you an illustration. I watched a beauty pageant several years ago with my wife, and A couple of the finalists were asked a couple of questions, and I remember when one of the contestants could have dodged the issue, been more politically correct in order to appease the current of anti-God, she gave a bold declaration of her faith in Christ. Oh, it created controversy on social media, and of course she was rejected. She didn't win. That's flipsis. That's trouble because she was resisting the current of the world or that system. 
or a couple in a serious relationship is pressed by the boyfriend to sleep with him, and, and uh, she refuses. Well, that created flipses so much that it brought a divide between the two. The boy left, and the relationship didn't make it. That was a flipses or trouble caused by resisting the prevalent dominant current in a world. So, in a world which is bent and always pulling you towards away from God, God says you'll have trouble. You'll feel like you're swimming upstream. It could be at work, in your marriage, at school, but it's real. And Jesus said you cannot avoid this kind of trouble. Uh, the paralyzed man, Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. He instructed him, pick up your mat and walk. And he did what Jesus told him to do. And when he did, he immediately got in all kind of flipses or trouble with the Pharisees for breaking the Sabbath law. They hated Jesus. They loved the law. And this guy is only doing what he was told to do, no bad consequences, and he gets in trouble because the current of the Pharisees was very anti-Jesus. Or Peter, he's getting out of the boat thinking this faith in Jesus thing is a great deal. But when he realizes he's put himself in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a lake where people have drowned, he's like now in holy flipses, and he starts to sink. I call this message, Why Faith Doesn't Always Feel Like It's Working. Because if we're to be people of faith, and we are, we need to erase the confusion that following Jesus leads us to a life with no trouble. Get it out of your mind. It doesn't exist. When Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, He gives us dignity by—we can be honest, and He confronts us with the reality that not everything in life will go the way you hope. Not everything in your life will turn out the way you want it to. And that's critical because if you don't accept that, you'll throw your faith aside at the first sign of trouble. Well, if there was a God, if Jesus loved me, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that for Him, then this wouldn't happen. And you'll try to find something else that works better. He says, in this world you'll have trouble. There's going to be flipses. But thankfully, while he insists that's where we start, that's not where we end. So he goes on. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart. Don't panic. Don't come apart now. I've overcome the world. Now, when you hear that, overcome the world, what does that statement say? Well, it's a lot more than Jesus bearing your sin on a cross, which He did. But it's way beyond that. And one thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean there won't be trouble. I'd like for Jesus to say, in this world you'll have trouble, Rick, but don't sweat it. I'll keep you from feeling it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? But He says, I've overcome the world. In other words, I'm going to redirect evil. I'm going to stop it at its source. And he does it by going to the cross. Now, this is really important to see. The cross is not just about dealing with my personal sin. It does that. But it changed the entire fabric of the human history. At that moment in time, the entire universe changed. The earth was cursed. Man was fallen. Man was in his sin. Jesus goes to the cross. And at the cross, some incredible things happened. The law was removed as a way of approaching God, as a way of being made righteous. He took that out of the way because He fulfilled it perfectly, and no human can. But more than that, at the cross, Satan suffered an eternal, irreversible, permanent defeat that he can never change. Most Christians won't go there. They'll believe He died for my sins, but you don't understand what happened to the enemy. Death, hell, and the grave 
were absolutely destroyed. Jesus won the whole victory. Satan, his angels, the demons, sin, death, he defeated all of them at the cross, which is why we can say when a person who's a believer passes away, you know, oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Well, Jesus took it away from you when he rose from the dead, having been crucified. He, he destroyed it. Now, the inevitable is happening. The enemy is suffering a very slow death at this moment, and I want to prove it to you. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a little leaven that leavens the whole. Now, I know you young girls don't take any more, what do you call it, uh, home ec. But when I went to school, we had ovens, not we, I, the girls had ovens, and they actually had to bake and cook and sew. What a novel idea. Now you don't have to. We had P.E. You actually had to go out and kick a ball and run and do stuff. Now you can just eat nachos and, and, and hang out. You don't have to do anything. So as I know, it's another day. Uh, we didn't have air conditioning either. <laughs> yeah, but I'm trying to make a point right here. So a lot of girls said, what's leaven? What's that? Well. Yeah. Older ladies here who actually cook, who actually do bake, know it's yeast. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom's like, it starts off little. It's small, small group. And Jesus kicks this thing off. It's like a little yeast, but it's going to leaven the whole. It's going to spread and bring the glory of God to the whole earth. There's not a chance in hell it can be stopped. It can be attacked. It can be per persecuted, but it cannot be stopped. Now, this is Jesus. In Isaiah 9, he says, of my kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we watch nations fall. We watch them renamed, redivided. We watch people fall. We watch uh, communism. We watch different pe people and groups come and go and fall. They have a season. God lifts up. God puts down. But he says, of my kingdom, it will never end. So you're part, if you're a believer, part of an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus is going to stop evil at its source by going to the cross. And so now, like yeast spreading through the dough, the kingdom of God is expanding throughout the world. It creates a new kind of gravity that pulls us towards mercy and grace and justice and righteousness. So he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus has changed the world. He's overcome it. So here's what people are thinking when I say that. Well, then why does there appear to be so much more evil in the world today? Well, listen, and I'll see if I can prove it. It's not that there is more evil. It's that evil is running out of oxygen it needs to live. And as it does, it screams and kicks and rises and attacks. It feels more damaging and dangerous, not because it's winning, but because it's losing, it's suffocating, it's terrified. And when the enemy is suffocating, if you, if you have ever watched uh, Animal Channel, when a predator grabs the prey by the neck, it will scream the loudest, kick the most. And if I were to send somebody out to grab you in a chair right now, you, I'm sure you'd wake up if they grabbed you around the throat and tried to choke the air. And in th that moment, adrenaline's going to hit your bloodstream. You're going to fight. You're going to bite. You're going to claw. You're going to kick. You're going to scream. You're going to be vicious for a while because you're losing oxygen, and you're headed towards oblivion. So if you can understand that, this will make a little bit of sense to you. 
as the enemy runs out of oxygen, as his death sentence approaches, he's more voracious and more extreme in his attacks because he's terrified and he's losing. Let me prove that to you from World War II. Uh, maybe it'll help you make sense. In World War II, D-Day was June 1944. Historians say World War II was won on D-Day when the Allies won the Battle of Normandy, and we put hundreds of thousands of Allied troops into France and on to Germany. From that moment forward, they say the outcome of the war was certain. However, the war itself raged on for another year before it officially ended on VE Day. That's victory in Europe, May 1945. So in that time between taking Normandy and pressing in against Nazi Germany, more battles occurred, more people died. There were voracious struggles because the Nazis were being pressed back and back in their homeland, losing more territory, and they were fighting more ferocious and more aggressive, and more people had to die, but the outcome was never in doubt. The greater the struggle and loss of land and the Rhineland, the more the enemy fought to try to preserve it, and the more vicious the attack, not because he's winning, because he's losing right? That's when you fight the hardest because you're about to lose. So there was flipses everywhere. So in a similar way, the cross of Christ marks D-Day, when Jesus actually officially overcame the world. And he, he defeated death, he defeated hell, and he defeated the grave. And to make sure nobody had any doubt, when he came back from the dead, he went right back to his team and says, okay, touch me, handle me, check me out. Oh, check, the, check the, my, the nail prints in my hand. Check my side here. It's me, the same guy. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid. I've already crossed over, been back, got a T-shirt, and I'm here to say, even death has no power over you that are in me. I've already defeated it. You may die in your flesh, but you're not going to die. You've got eternal life. You're going to be as healthy and fine as me, so I don't want you to be worried about it. I already defeated death, and one day I'll remove it completely from the earth. But I defeated it at the cross. So between those two dates, when Jesus died on the cross and His ultimate return, there's trouble everywhere. But He says, take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. And the sin that fuels the evil in our world is slowly being suffocated by the kingdom of God. And if you were one of the demonic principalities and powers in Middle Eastern countries or other countries that are godless or pagan or false god, you'd be terrified. They're so afraid of Christians in the Middle East now, they're killing them. They're killing them. They're putting them out of the country. They're, ter they're terrified. I love it that our God is so strong, so secure. He doesn't throw anybody out. He doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't threaten anybody. It's whosoever will, because his kingdom is never, ever in jeopardy. Not once. But the enemy's kingdom is in deep flip flipses. Subject to interpretation there. Okay. It is true. Now, that has some implications for our lives. Very powerful. First, Jesus is stronger than our troubles. It's vitally important to know that Jesus knows we'll face trouble. He knows that because we feel like when trouble hits us, flips us, comes, we're alone in it. But Jesus said, no, 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 I get it. I've been through it. No, I know this happens. He had more trouble than any human being on the face of the earth. Anything he did, and he was without sin, and he lived against this culture. 
So it's not just a word of empathy here for us, it's a word of power. It says Jesus is more powerful than the gravity that pulls me towards addiction. Jesus is more powerful than the gravity that pulls me toward greed and selfishness. He's more powerful than the gravity or current that pulls me towards doubt and despair and fear. But it's not easy. But he says there's hope for those who put their trust in him. There's real possibility for change for you, for me, for our world this week, this month, this year. There is real possibility for change now. And this is clear. We, we don't make resolutions. We, we put one resolution in motion. And that resolution is that I'm putting my hope in the one who has real power and only power over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the only one is Jesus. Nobody else even comes close. He's the only one that defeated death, hell, and the grave. The only one that said, I am the resurrection and the life. The only one that died and came back. You can't do that with Buddha, Muhammad, Allah, and any of the rest of them. And I don't have to give my God a banana and light a candle and walk away and let it rot. I mean, it's just dumb. You've got you to just give up your brain and quit thinking about this thing. So I, I, if I were an enemy, I'd be terrified of Jesus too because there's no power great. It says that, that Satan, the demons believe in him. They're not atheists. Think about that. They believe in him and tremble. When you use his name, they tremble. You roll them back like a beach ball down at the, at the, at the ocean. And, and yet Christians, oh, I'm so afraid. No, they're terrified of Jesus. They reject him completely. So it's tough luck for them. But they, they know who he is. They know the power. Jesus we know. Paul we know. But who are you? So he wants you to know who you are so you're not living in fear. He's the one I put my hope in who overcame everything in the world. And it can't overcome me. It can attack me, but it cannot overcome me. Secondly, a second implication is that Jesus offers his peace in the face of trouble. Now, you may not like this one. He said, I've told you these things so you can have peace, which, which sounds a little strange since the next thing he says is that in the world you will have trouble. Oh, give me a break, Lord. See, the peace Jesus gives is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of God in the face of conflict. Have you ever been—I used to love to watch Bonanza, Little Joe Cartwright, and his big, big, big brother, Hoss Cartwright. Remember him? Huge, giant of a guy. And Little Joe, big mouth, get in the bar room, saloon, couple of drunk gunfighters kind of corner him. It ain't looking real good for Little Joe. And big Hoss Cartwright comes through the saloon doors. Oh, the whole atmosphere changes. Suddenly, Little Joe's got boldness. Confidence. He ain't afraid of anybody because Big Hoss has just come in. Big Hoss is not afraid of anybody. And one of the drunk cowboys took a swing at Hoss and he just stood there. The best swing. And I remember the cowboy drunk said, If that didn't hurt you, there ain't no need for us to fight. And Hoss took him out. But you could be in a hospital room, you could be in a dire situation, and somebody can walk in and just bring peace. And this is what Jesus says. I'm not going to let you escape conflict. I'm going to bring you peace in the midst of that conflict that you're not alone. I remember several years ago I was flying a senior pastor, his wife, his 85-year-old mother, the associate pastor, his wife, 
And my wife, Cindy, sitting here. We were out of Jacksonville, Florida, headed to Savannah, Georgia. I was climbing through 15,000 feet when suddenly the right engine blew up. Smoke and oil streaming all over the wing. The plane shuddered with that great loss of power, and everything went dead silent in that airplane. And I just smoothly, having been well-trained and always rehearsed, pulled the power back took the fuel away from the engine, feathered it, stabilized altitude, called air traffic control, and said, we've lost an engine, we're fine. Do you want to declare an emergency? No, calm down, everything's fine. And the associate pastor was sweating. He was just trembling in fear, sitting in the co-pilot seat next to me. And I looked at him and I said, Ray, listen to me. I never raised my voice. I said, we're cruising at level altitude here, 14,000 feet now. I said, we're fine. I do this all the time. I've done this very maneuver hundreds of times. I'm trained for this. There, this plane is equipped for this one. We got 400 horses burning out there. We're fine. It's going to be okay. And here's what he told somebody after he landed who then told me. He says, when Rick looked at me and said, I do this all the time. This is not new. There's no reason to be afraid. We're going to be just fine. He said he spoke with such confidence, I suddenly, though I was afraid, felt peace. Now, Jesus said, that's what I want you to have. That's why I've already crossed over, suffered the worst thing you could suffer, death, defeated it, and come back so that now you can have peace, whether it's stage four cancer or whether you're going to recover. You don't have to be afraid. I, I've been there. I've suffered that. And I'm coming into your storm saying, peace. Not because there's no trouble, but because I'm here. Now, you know, there are certain people, if they show up, they can make things a whole lot better for you. Now, we've had a few friends that have helped us in a storm, and you probably have had some too. And of course, the Lord's behind all of that anyway to say, hey, don't go into panic. The last thing you need to do is scream and panic. You know, I've watched little children get hurt, and the mother screams, then the children run. Everybody thinks there's a, a spirit of scream. Everybody's screaming. And no, the person in control says, first rule, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't panic. And when that happens, you calm down the atmosphere in a panic situation. It's really, really important. The disciples are about to face a terrible test. They're going to fail it. They're going to abandon Jesus in His moment of greatest need, facing crucifixion. But Jesus refuses to abandon them. He wants them to experience His peace, His loving presence, which means no matter how big or bad the storms are that are raging against you, no matter how much trouble you may find this year, God says, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. I've told you a hundred times my wonderful grandmother, Ora B. Godwin, Ora. Those were some interesting names back then. Her sister was Fannie Mae. Now that's a lending agency, I think, but that was a name back then, right? Yeah, some, some of you don't know, okay. And she used to say, Ricky, if you go into that pool hall, Jesus is not going with you. Well, Grandma loved Jesus. She's in heaven. She knows better. He had, yeah, he went with me in the pool hall in the movie. He may not like everything I do or did, but he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And there's a lot of bad theology that goes around. He says, I will never abandon you. If you're by yourself, you're facing a, a, you've been kidnapped by a terrorist, you're not alone. The angels of God encamp about those that fear Him to deliver them. And you won't be the first one. Daniel was wrapped up, tied up, and thrown in a hungry lion's pit. You, you got it worse than that? 
How about a fiery furnace? And, and you don't know if he'll get you out or not. You may have to go through death. Many martyrs did. Some were delivered, some weren't, but all of them had peace. God was with them. He was the fourth man in the fire. He'll be the fourth man in your fire, whatever it may be. But he will, he'll give you an inner peace. It's, he's with me. Live or die, sink or swim, he's not going to forsake me. And that means an awful lot when you're laying in a hospital bed and there doesn't seem to be any medical treatment for your condition. The angels of the Lord encamp about those who fear them. I've got angels with me. I've got the presence of the Lord with me. I shouldn't be in fear and panic. We're all temporal on this earth. God says, that which I've begun in you, I'll perform it to the day of Jesus. I think you're unstoppable in the will of God until God says, now I'm ready. And when he's ready for you to come home, you're going to come home. If he's not ready, you'll recover. It's just that simple. But he said, either way, live or die, I don't want you to be frightened. So Jesus never abandoned them. And he says, I'm going to be with you in the midst of your storm. So I've seen people in great tragedy and calamity, and you have too. They can be interviewed. Uh, They've got peace. They've lost a child in a shooting. And yet that family does not go to pieces. They're heartbroken, but they have confidence. They're people of faith that their child is with the Lord. They have confidence, His presence with them, and they don't come apart. They don't go out and become alcoholics. They don't go out and go to a mental institution because they've come apart. Jesus really gives them a peace that passes all understanding. And last, third, that text reminds us that Jesus loves the world. Jesus doesn't say, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I'm going to kick it into the middle of nowhere where it counts. No, He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. So how did Jesus overcome the world? Not with armies, not with violence. Not with a suicide uh, pack, not with political power. He overcame the world by humbling himself, taking on the life of a servant, being obedient to his Father, and to the death on a cross for the sake of a world in trouble. There wasn't any other option. Now, that changes how we as believers ought to live in our world. We get the opportunity to participate in bringing God's kingdom to its fullest expression not by ignoring sin and death and suffering, but by joining Jesus as He suffocates it. And that happens every day. When an alcoholic, a drug addict, a sex addict discovers deliverance and healing and the grace of God, there's less air for evil to breathe. When someone of great wealth starts to measure their life not by what they possess, but by what they can give and do and create, there's less air for evil to breathe. When somebody who can't look at himself in a mirror discovers God created them, loves them, and they begin to see themselves like he does, there's less oxygen for evil to breathe. When a person looks at the cross and says, yep, that's God's way of dealing with trouble, with sin, with shame, and with condemnation, and you accept that good news that he died for you, there's less air for evil to breathe. So he says, in this world you have, will have trouble. And your faith may not always feel like it's working, but rest assured, one who is stronger than your trouble, who offers peace in the face of every storm, loved this world enough to give himself for it. So he's overcome the world, and he's secured the outcome. That means for this year and every year that follows, I don't have to fear or run from trouble. We can commit to invade our troubled world with love, with grace, with justice and mercy until he comes again.
and sin and death can breathe no more. Every time we send out a missions team, you'll see a video in a moment. Every time we buy packs and preach good news to uh, the, the unfortunate children that are underprivileged, 1,500 backpacks coming up in August. We do every year free of charge because of your generosity. Or we have 600 children starting tomorrow. This place will look like a fire ant mound with hundreds of volunteers and workers and 600 children making it free of charge. And we teach them good news that God loves them. They come from all kinds of good homes, broken homes, single parent homes. We're choking the oxygen out of evil. Every time we advance the kingdom and somebody comes to Christ, I'm choking more oxygen out of evil. And the enemy kicks and slanders and attacks to do all he can to stop the inevitable that he cannot stop. And you get to be part of choking the, the oxygen, the air out of evil every time we proclaim good news, every time we sow to help the poor and advance the kingdom of God, we're choking the air right out of the enemy. So let's choke it good. Father, help us hear good news today. Thank you. You've overcome sin, death, hell, and the grave, hate, greed, violence, and prejudice, and everything that stands against you. That means we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to lose. Help us live boldly in the light of this good news in our homes, our families, our work, our relationships, and all that we say and do. Finally, I pray that we don't lose sight of that great day when you will once again come and come again. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow when everything will be made new. But until that day, draw near to us as we face trouble. And keep us close to those who suffer around us and live in need, so that they too can come to know that you have overcome even death and sin, that it has no power over the one in Christ. We pray that in the name of Jesus, who secured the victory for all of mankind. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.